Hi, Beacon. Welcome back to another week of meeting online. I hope that you are all doing well during Safer at Home, and I'm thankful that I haven't seen any videos of people shaving their heads or cutting their bangs, so I take it that no one has gone too crazy yet. Um, but really, I've been praying for you all, and especially that during this time we can be putting off weights and sins that hinder us so that we can run the race of faith well, as Pastor Francis encouraged us last week. If you don't know me, my name is Leighton. I am a senior at USC. Fight on. Um, and it might be odd for you to see me sitting here when you were probably expecting Francis. Um, but today, I am here because I have the blessing of bringing us through the next portion of our study in the book of James. Um, and not as a spiritual authority, but as your peer. Um, now, I want to start by saying that I am not an especially experienced orator. I do not have a seminary degree. I am learning new things about scripture every day, and I'm still growing in my understanding and love for it. But something that Francis has helped me see as I've been under his care over the past few years is that I do have a genuine love for communicating scripture to others. I have a love for savoring its sweet truth and a passion for helping others grow in faith and trust as they know their Savior better through Scripture. And as God has helped me identify this gift that I can use to build up the church, I hope that you as well would be seeking out and stewarding your gifts so that you can, as Ephesians 4 says, grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All of the body of Christ has ministry work to do, each part of the body in its own way, and each equipped uniquely for that work. So I hope that as I share from God's word and seek to be faithful to this call that I've received to build up the body with the gifts that I've been given, I hope that you also would seek faithfulness to God in stewarding the gifts and the teaching that you've received so that the body matures into Christ-likeness. Especially during this very unique season of coronavirus and isolation. For example, how can you all be reaching out and ministering to each other? I encourage you to explore different ways you can be building the rest of the body up in love. So let's get to our passage for tonight. Um, we are back in the book of James, and if you remember anything from our study so far, you might recall that the book of James is all about living out wise faith. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So it's about being a hearer and a doer of the word. Um, and as we continue in chapter 4 today, we are going to look at how we do this specifically in our planning. Before we start, I encourage you to think about this topic within our current context. I'm sure that none of us was expecting all the changes that coronavirus has wrought on our daily lives. None of us planned to be at home with family or stuck in our apartments. None of us planned to face new struggles like isolation, strained family relationships, joblessness, and tight finances. The plans that you might have made for yourself for the rest of the school year and the summer have been drastically changed. And at the same time, our life stage as college-aged people includes a lot of planning for the future. We're constantly thinking about what we are going to do with the rest of our lives and how we can be preparing for it now. 
So tonight, we are people whose plans have drastically changed, and um, at the same time, we are people who um, are in a stage of life that is essentially dedicated to planning for the future. So we desperately need to hear what Scripture has to say um, about how to plan for the future with wisdom. So before we get to our passage, let's pray. Father, we need help because uh, we are in new uh, contexts, new times, uh, and we need your word to speak truth into these circumstances um, as we seek faithfulness during um, coronavirus and as we seek faithfulness as college students um, we ask for your help to show us how to plan wisely um, and i ask that our time of scripture would be fruitful um, that you would um, speak through me um, and that you would reveal yourself uh, through this text and help us treasure you and your gospel more as we study. We thank you for loving us, and I ask that you would be with us as we um, walk through this passage together. In your name we pray. Amen. So as a refresher and to give us some context, let's review some of the things that we've covered in our study of the book of James. Um, so hopefully... You remember that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this letter, and he is writing to Jewish Christians that have spread far outside of Jerusalem. James has heard of some social issues that have arisen in these churches, specifically tensions between the rich and the poor, and so he writes this letter to exhort his readers to greater faith and good works. For example, in chapter 1, in light of the persecution and poverty these Christians were facing at the time, James encourages his readers to see suffering as a good gift that God gives in order to make them perfect and complete. Later in his thesis passage, he urges them to be both hearers and doers of the word. In chapter 2, he addresses the tension between the rich and the poor and the necessary partnership between faith and works. Next, James addresses the danger of the tongue in chapter 3. And now in chapter 4, where we find our passage today, James comes to address a string of sins that all have to do with pride. So let's look at verses 13 through 17. Here James turns specifically to address the wealthy, um, this merchant class um, of Christians who seem to be very confident in their futures. So let's read. Starting in verse 13, it says, Boasting about tomorrow. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So this passage is really straightforward, um, and its message is clear. Your knowledge of tomorrow 
uh, is finite and your life is a mist. So live in submission to the will of God. Um, and our main idea for today is an exhortation. Plan life wisely by submitting to the will of God. Plan life wisely by submitting to the will of God. I'm sure that your mind is already jumping to different questions and applications, but let's take a more detailed look at the situation that James is writing in and at what specifically he's arguing. So James presents to us two different ways of talking about plans, and these communicate two different heart postures that we can have before the Lord. So the first heart posture that James presents is arrogant boasting. And what he primarily wants to communicate is that planning that does not first acknowledge God is both foolish and sinful. So let's look at this first heart posture. Um, So James starts off by presenting the situation. There is a group of people in the church, presumably wealthy merchant class Christians, who have made very detailed plans for their future. They say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. In other words, what they are saying is essentially, I am in control of my life and I have decided how it's going to go. James points out that in the way that they speak, they make multiple presumptions about their lives and their autonomy. Follow along with me in verse 13 as they break down their words. So when they say today or tomorrow, they presume to be in charge of when they do things. When they say, we will go, they presume that they have self-determination. When they say to such and such a town, they presume that they have control over where they go. When they say and spend a year there, they presume control over how long they live. And when they say trade and make a profit, They presume that they can do as they wish, that their businesses will be profitable, and that they can live for their own personal gain. This is a long string of detailed plans. And on one level, this shows how diligent they've been in their planning. They've covered everything from time and location to the task and the desired outcome. And at first we might be impressed. We might regard their planning as admirably thorough, wise even. However, we must see that their planning isn't prudent. It shows that they have foolishly assumed control over their lives. In verse 14, James immediately points out what doesn't make sense about this way of living with four realities. First, he says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The first reality that he introduces is human knowledge is limited. These people have been living as if they knew the future as if they were certain that the plans that they'd laid out would come to fruition. But the reality is that they didn't know. Their pride had blinded them to what was true. In their humanity, their knowledge was much too limited to be confident in their plans. Next, James says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So the word here for mist can be translated also as vapor, or a breath. James uses this mist analogy to introduce three more realities of human life. First, life is short. The mist of our lives appears for just a short time. Second, life is fragile. 
The very nature of a vapor is that it disappears almost instantly. And third, life is not in our control. Imagine on a cold winter morning when you can see the warm vapor of your breath. Can you reach out and catch it? Can you manipulate it, keep it stationary, or extend its length? Thus, James calls us to recognize our limited knowledge and to view our lives as finite, fleeting, and not in our control, in the same way that a cool mist of dawn evaporates in the morning light. The people he is addressing presume um, that they have ultimate control over their lives and what they do, but the reality is that they have no control whatsoever. At this point, it might be easy to point out the foolishness of their attitudes, but maybe not so much why it's wrong. So James clarifies in verse 16 to elucidate, elucidate that this is a sin problem. Um, and this brings us to our second subpoint: Planning that does not acknowledge God is sinful. So skipping to verse 16, he says, As it is, so in your plans, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is sinful. Anyone who makes plans on their own terms and in their own power boasts in their arrogance. The verb here, to boast, is also often translated as to glory or to take great pride or pleasure in something. And lots of other places in the Bible um, use it positively. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10, 17, Paul says, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And in Galatians 6, 14, it says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But James wants us to see that boasting in arrogance or boasting in self is in itself a direct challenge to the authority of God. James is telling us that when we make our plans for our lives by our own power and by our own wisdom, essentially what we are saying is that there is no sovereign God above us. Prideful planning that does not first acknowledge the sovereignty of God communicates a functional atheism in our hearts. Psalm 10, 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So James sees this attitude and aggressively calls us, um, his readers, to awake from their delusions. You do not know what tomorrow brings. Life is a mist. How can you be so sure that you'll even see tomorrow? And so when we're presented with this kind of foolish and sinful attitude, we must be careful not to quickly distance ourselves from the accused and say, oh yeah, my heart is in the right place in planning. Rather, we should diligently check ourselves to see the ways that we are the same as the people that James is addressing. Think about the plans that you've made for your future. Have you presumed that you have control over what you do? As a simple example, have you presumed that you'll wake up tomorrow? Have you presumed that you'll even make it to the end of this message? You don't know. I might bore you to death. Recognize that trusting in yourself to make sufficient plans for your life is both foolish and sinful. And so from this foolish and sinful posture, James leads us to the right heart posture that we should have, away from a self-sufficient and self-deterministic way of thinking um, into a different heart posture, which is our next point.
Heart posture two, humble submission. It says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So here we get to the key statement of the passage in this phrase, if the Lord wills. Basically put, what James is saying is that wise planning humbly submits to the will of the Lord. But, of course, easier said than done. And I think there is value here as well to take a look at the words that make up this phrase to help us understand what James is saying. So first, this word if. Usually when we see if, it means that we've come to a conditional if-then statement. The following statement is true exclusively when the preceding statement is true. And the specific content of this if-then statement is important. It says, if the Lord wills, then we will live. It doesn't say, if the Lord wills, then we will do. It says, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do. And this indicates to us that even life and death remain in the hands of sovereign God. In the same way that James qualifies life as a mist that vanishes after a little while, here he says that whether or not each of us even has the opportunity to live is ultimately up to the Lord. Next, the Greek word here rendered the Lord is not just a title um, used for God. It is meant to express respect and reverence to a supreme authority. It's used um, as a title that servants use to greet their master. It's a word that expresses humble submission to a greater power. Finally, the Greek word used for will here is thelo, meaning to have in mind or to intend. And it's the root word for thelema, which is usually specifically used to refer to God's sovereign will or what he has determined shall come to pass. And this will is perfect and unthwartable, but it also remains secret to us until it comes to pass. We see this word famously used in verses like uh, Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we put it all together, this simple forward phrase outlines a radically humble heart posture that we can have before the Lord. When we say, if the Lord wills, we acknowledge that it is only by him that we live. We acknowledge and give God rightful authority and honor by calling him our master. And we acknowledge that his will is sovereign and perfect, but hidden from us until he brings about what he has decided. So for many of us, we might carelessly slap on this phrase, if the Lord wills or Lord willing as a preface when we talk about our plans, but let's use it with purpose remembering that this is a call to humility. At this point, you might be asking, um, if God is ultimately going to bring about what he has planned, then is it worth planning at all? Can't I just, as people like to say, let go and let God? And the basic answer here is no. God has not designed life to be a lazy river where you sit back and let the current pull you along. James's intent is not to make you despairingly existential or fatalistic. It's not a Jesus-take-the-wheel type careless surrender to the will of God that he's encouraging. When he is addressing the merchant's planning for tomorrow, he is very clear 
that it is not the act of planning that is sinful, but the heart behind the act that is sinful. If it were the act of planning that is sinful, then in verse 15, he would have said something like, so do not plan for tomorrow. But instead, he still says, we will live and do this or that. With that really important conditional statement tagged at the front, if the Lord wills. Thus, it is both the prideful heart that says, I'll do what I think is best for me, and the lazy heart that says, I won't plan at all because God will do it, that displease the Lord. But in contrast, it's the heart that approaches planning in humble submission to the Lord, the one that comes before the Lord with a bowed head and open hands, the one that says, not mine, but your will be done, that ultimately pleases the Lord. So rather than imagining life as a lazy river, which God will slowly pull you round and round, see life as an adventurous voyage across the sea with God as your ever-faithful North Star, perfectly leading you through calm and rocky waters all the way home to eternity with Him. We plan, but we keep a tight grip on the authority and sovereignty of God and a loose grip on the plans that we've made. And ultimately, this allows us to rest in God and live joyfully for Him. So think, what would you say your heart posture is? Are you heart posture one or heart posture two? Be brutally honest with yourself. Do you recognize, as we talked about in our first point, that planning without first acknowledging the Lord is foolish, that our knowledge as human beings is limited, and that life is short, fragile, and not in your control? And do you recognize that your planning without acknowledging God is sinful, that it expresses a functional atheism that removes God from the picture? I'm sure that lots of us recognize our own limitations and sins, but I wonder if that has really seeped in and affected our worldviews. For myself, even, in the past few weeks as I've been preparing this message, I've recognized planning that I've made for myself that showed a lack of submission to the Lord, even with good things. For example, I was reflecting with some friends on how God has been growing them um, and, and giving them gifts that they can use to build up the church. And as I was getting so excited about how God will use them in the future, one of them stopped me and jokingly interjected, if the Lord wills. And I know it was a joke, but I kind of felt my stomach drop because I felt rebuked. I, I realized that I really didn't know if what I had hoped for them would actually come to pass. My dreaming for these friends wasn't necessarily sinful, but I came away recognizing the limitations of my knowledge. The Lord could have something completely different in store for them. So consider the plans that you've made for your future. Your plans to go to med school or have this or that job. Your plans for the internship in the summer. Your plans for your free time even. Who are you serving? Yourself or God? Also consider your worries about the future. Do you feel a need to know everything that is going on? Are you anxious? Another great way to assess your heart posture is by looking at how you respond when things don't go your way. When God brings about something different than what you had planned, how do you respond? When you don't get that job that you really wanted, when a deadly virus cuts your college experience short, what does your heart say? 
So some of you might immediately be able to identify yourself as someone who plans way too much without thinking about God's will, or as someone who experiences anxiety and worry because you don't know what the future holds. But maybe you're thinking, what if I'm not either or? Um, you might not even, you might not think that you're living life in a in pursuit of money, um, like the people in the passage. And maybe you do think you submit to the Lord in your planning. Um, and make plans that aren't necessarily bad or selfish things. And to you, I say, do not worry. James has included you in the passage as well, but it's probably not the encouragement that you're looking for. Let's look at verse 17. It says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So this last verse might feel a little bit disjointed, Um, But James is really driving his point home. What he's talking about here is what are called sins of omission. So, for example, if you know that stealing is wrong, but still steal, then you're sinning. That's pretty self-explanatory. Or if you know that your good friend is cheating on his schoolwork, but do nothing to lovingly call him out of his sin, then you are sinning as well. So if you know the right thing to do, but fail to do it, you are in sin. And this logic is true also in even the good things that we fail to do. For example, if you know that there are people dying of hunger in underdeveloped countries around the world, and if you know that Jesus has commanded us to serve those in need, but still fail to act on that knowledge, even out of forgetfulness, then you are sinning. So what James is saying in the context that he's writing in is, That if you know God's sovereignty, and if you know your own finitude, if you know your need to live according to the will of God, but still do not act according to that knowledge, then you are in sin. His aim is to make our sin and our shortcomings so clear to us that we cannot even have the slightest grounds to boast in ourselves. James is saying, no matter who you are, And no matter what good intentions you go into your planning with, you will miss the mark. No matter what plans you make, because our very nature is tainted with sin, we will always face the danger of forgetting what is honoring to the Lord and rather making it about ourselves. And in making it about ourselves, we actually fail to do both what is right and we fail to do what is good for us. You fail to please the Lord, and you fail to please yourself. This should be discouraging for us. How can it be possible for us then to be faithful to this command? Um, And James's words to us can feel heavy-handed, almost bitter with the bite of angry condemnation, but we can't forget what James has just said to us earlier in chapter 4. And that brings us to our last point, the remedy for pride, the grace of God to the humble. So this whole conversation is couched under this umbrella of a beautiful encouragement in chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. And it says, But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then in verse 10, 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The hope provided here is one of the most foundational in all of James's letter. It says that when you come before the Lord in humility, He gives you grace. And not only does He show you grace, He also promises you exaltation. And this is so backwards. The ones who come before the Lord, recognizing their poor estate before Him, are raised up to dignity and the highest honor. This exaltation for the humble is not an isolated event in the Bible. The best example that we have of it is in the life of our Savior. Jesus in the gospel perfectly models for us how to come before the Lord in humble submission to his will. Matthew 26, verse 39. This is on on the night of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even in the face of death and taking on the full judgment of God, it was Jesus' heart to obey. Even though he was the fullness of God on earth, he still bows to the Father's will, even to the point of dying the most excruciating physical death known to man and the most severe spiritual punishment as he completely exhausts the full wrath of God in our place. Jesus humbly submits. And Philippians 4 shows us that as he submitted himself to the Lord, in turn, the Lord highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In light of this example, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, also verse 20, show us how we are to live. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So when we see Christ's perfect example of humility and perfect sacrifice on the cross. And when we see the salvation that he has won for us and the love that he shows us on the cross, we should be so overcome that his love effectively controls us. And not only is there no room for selfish planning, there's no need for it. We are so humbled by his sacrifice and love for us that we no longer need to live for ourselves. But as verse 15 says, Live joyfully for him who for our sake died and was raised. In the gospel, we see ourselves rightly as sinners facing condemnation from a holy God 
who are offered perfect righteousness through the life, death, and resurrection of the sinless Son, and now find perfect purpose by the Holy Spirit, not for ourselves and for our own wills, but the Lord's. When we fit ourselves into this greater story of redemption, all of our planning sits under His sovereignty and aligns with His story, and we don't have to worry about writing our own. Many of you, like me, might hear this call to live in submission and feel afraid of missing out. Living in submission to the will of God could mean so many scary things for our lives. It could mean never having our dream job. It could mean giving up financial security. It could mean never enjoying the gift of marriage. It could mean moving to a different city, leaving Lighthouse, or facing rejection from the world. And deep in our hearts, this reality that we are called to is terrifying. We have a strong propensity to secure for ourselves in the world a set of cornerstones that will bring us peace, stability, and control. We love being in control. But in the same way that James's description of our lives as mist aims to draw us into humility before the Lord, it also serves as a rich comfort for us in the midst of whatever we face. Our life is a mist. We don't have to be our own saviors. We don't have to command our own lives. God exalts those who come before him in humility. On the other hand, when we choose to trust ourselves rather than put our trust in God, not only are we slandering our God who deserves our submission, we are subjecting ourselves to greater anxiety and worry by trusting ourselves rather than God. Humble submission to the Lord in our planning is not just right, it's better. I saw this in my own life when I first started discerning that God was calling me to long-term missions in Japan. I had built up plans for myself already, and as God started pressing the people of Japan upon my heart, I started to realize that I probably wouldn't ever get to do the things that I wanted for my life. Even my plans that were made out of an honest heart to serve Him, like my plans to be a teacher for linguistically disadvantaged people groups, even those were slowly removed from the picture. But in the midst of grieving those things, God has shown me that submitting to what He has ordained is infinitely better for me. And when I get to eternity with Him, everything I didn't get to do won't matter because the mist of my life will all have been in preparation for enjoying eternity with Him. And I will not have missed out on a single thing. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that the only way you can be faithful to this command of humble submission is by becoming a missionary. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't make carefully thought out plans. But it does mean that you shouldn't be surprised when God calls you to do things that are drastically different from what you planned. It could be as drastic as a switch in careers or as simple as a change of routine or canceling plans to have time to minister to your unbelieving family members. The thing about God's planning in His sovereignty 
is that he's able to pull off much more sophisticated orchestrations than we are. While our plans are simple and pragmatic, planning to get from point A to point B, God's plans are much more complex. He's juggling more things than we can understand, and he's making them come together perfectly in the way that he intends. Because he knows all things, he has infinite power and capability to lay out the circumstances of our lives with intimate care. And he's doing so not, in a, not only in arranging and organizing our situations, but also in allowing and repurposing sin and suffering. And so, though we don't get the whole picture now, at the end of our lives, we will get to look back and see how he had purposed every second for our good. If James is presenting to us an exhortation to live wisely, then the wisdom he urges us to live with is very different from a conventional, worldly understanding of wisdom. When the world says, gather all the information and trust in yourself to make a sensible plan for your life. In contrast, biblical James 4 wisdom says, get on your knees before the Lord and plan to the goal of submission to the sovereign will that he has ordained that only he knows. While the world says wise living is pragmatic planning, James says that wise living is trusting the Lord and his sovereign plan. To close, I want to give us four basic guidelines for our passage that help us plan wisely. This, of course, isn't an exhaustive list, but hopefully they will help you think through the plans that you've made for your future in a way that helps us live out this heart posture that James is calling us to. So first, humbly submit to the Lord in prayer in all things. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Prayer is one of our main avenues of humbling ourselves before the Lord and acknowledging Him in all our ways. It communicates that we are not in control of the world, and it affirms that our God is. So bring everything, big and small, to Him in prayer. Next, pursue what pleases God. So back in our passage, that word for will that indicates God's sovereign will is also used in the Bible to mean to desire or to love, or to take delight in. So when James talks about the will of the Lord, he's also calling us to set our minds on what is pleasing to God. You might know this as God's revealed or moral will. And so while God's sovereign will is kept a secret in that only God is in control of what comes to pass, we still have lots of information about how we should live because he has made known to us what he delights in. Ultimately, the things that our Creator God delights in are what is good for us, and thus we can make plans for our lives as we seek to do what is pleasing to Him. And how do we know what pleases God? We have a whole book. So let's read it. See your planning through the lens of Scripture. Third, um, question your heart. We saw that James made it very clear that it's the posture of our hearts that matters to God. Um, and also in verse 5, he says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. 
And he wants to make right worshippers out of us. And he's willing to use lots of different means to get us there. After all, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. So ask yourself again, what happens when things don't go your way? How do you respond? When you don't get that grade or job or acceptance letter you worked so hard for, or when a sudden change completely alters the timeline of your life, what does your heart say? Does it seethe with frustration and anger? Does it wither with anxiety and worry? At the end of your notes, I've included a link to a Lighthouse resource with some diagnostic questions to help you examine your heart as you make decisions and plan in submission to the will of God. Finally, see your life through the lens of the gospel. This fourth encouragement is to see yourself and your life as you were meant to see it. Remember that you were made by God, not primarily for the purpose of being a successful doctor or a business person or even an actualized human being, um, but simply to worship God. Remember also that your sin alienated you from God and made you his enemy. But by the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, you are redeemed and restored to right relationship with him. Remember that your life is no longer your own. It was bought with a price. And now we do not live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. As college students, we need to remember these things because the world will tell us that life is about us, that we have to work to make ourselves something, that um, if we plan everything right, then we can make the most of life and be successful and be satisfied and live wisely. But don't be de deceived. Wise living is humble submission to God. We are most fulfilled when we submit to his will. So I hope that these guidelines are helpful for you in thinking through your planning um, and all of these things, and all of it. Let's be a people who say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and how clear you have made it to us that we are finite, that we are weak, that our lives are but a mist that vanishes at dawn. Uh, and, and we thank you um, for the hope that is presented in this passage, along with that realistic understanding of who we are. The hope that we have a God who is powerful, who is omniscient and sovereign, who is orchestrating all of the things of the world and, and aligning it with his will. Father, we thank you for being so powerful and we praise you. Um, we worship you because of it. And I ask that as we continue to reflect on the plans that we have made for our lives, as we continue to um, examine our hearts to check our heart postures, um, I ask that you would use these things to make us into more faithful worshipers of you. People who trust your sovereignty and your will, who submit to it, and who give you glory in all of the things that we do.
Father, we look forward to the day when you will bring us home, um, when our exciting voyage comes to an end. And until then, we ask that you would help us treasure Christ and submit to your will in, in our planning, and that we would do these things to, um, to your glory. We thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.